When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, DJ. Our guest today is Sean L. Maloney, who wrote a book for the 33 and a third series on the legendary record, The Modern Lovers. Welcome, Sean. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Good yeah, to be here. Thanks for joining us. So we've done a few 33 and a third books, and you know they're really interesting because the author seems to have a lot of room to investigate certain things. So I always like to ask, the first question is, give us your pitch to 33 and a third. What did you want to write about this record? Oh, uh... I was so stoked on the the fact that it was this record that was never supposed to be made, that it came out of this like really um, obscure end of the the sixties and seventies calendar culture. I love Boston history. So like the opportunity to talk about government center and, you know, the highways and all the sort of like nerdy things, the combat zone. Yeah. The combat (laughs) zone, like talking about like in neighborhoods in Cambridge and, you know, BU and, the the first draft had an entire storyline about just bank robberies, the friends of Eddie Coyle, and kind of like that whole phenomenon. And so I was able to just kind of like synthesize this very pulpy, trashy, you know, war on hippies, birth of punk, like a very kind of conflicted, high energy pitch. And it, it worked. It was wild. I just, you know, I led with the war on hippies and I dropped all the names and it's such a beloved record with such a like a small but fervent cult mm. that it was an easy sell well you got it made so oh. uh, yeah I, <laughs> like I, I i say it was an easy sell but like my proposal took me a year to write but i had you know i've been working on it since the series really kicked off i had a, a advisor in college uh john dugan that wrote the who sell out mm-hmm. and so you know, it was this kind of running joke while he was writing that book that I was going to write the Modern Lovers book. And so when the open call went out, I was, I was like freshly unemployed. I had amassed all of this like Boston, like underground history, newspapers and the clubs. And, uh, you know, I just I'd managed to like track down all sorts of stuff. Well, one of the things about the book that I loved is it, it might it just might be the one of the most concise histories of the Boston music scene. And, you know, Brett Milano has a must read for fans of Boston, but this one goes a little bit further back. But it's it's really concise. And the way you set it against this particular record is fascinating. 
you know, I guess I was just pressed for space. There were so many good bands. The history is so rich and underdocumented mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that I wanted to be able to get kind of everything in there. And and because it really, it, the evolution of the Boston music scene really kind of explains Jonathan Richmond's arc and then how he turned into the guy in the eight. You know, he, he turned into... A different person, really. I, I mean, I think he was fundamentally connected to his like early experiments where he was just like going in with not much but like childlike wonder right right are you a native bostonian i grew up way outside of boston okay. uh i'm on the i'm from north reading so i'm from like the the uncool side of 128 <laughs> same as jonathan in terms of the, the world away from downtown boston exactly like i i'm equidistant from natick different direction but the same kind of Mental space, the same physical space. North Reading's just kind of like a, a swamp. <laughs> just like a little swamp. It's not the kind of hilly, nowhere land of Natick. I don't know. It's it, one of those Massachusetts suburbs that just kind exactly. of... It continues the the kind of the vibe of the pilgrims, and it's just kind of like forceful squareness. <laughs> well, there's there's a couple of that's a good phrase, and there's a couple in your book that I want to get to. Uh, forceful squareness, squareness, right, right. The kind of weird puritanical unhipness that we were founded on. So let's dig into your book, and and perhaps the best teaser for your book for our reader our listeners out there who who should read this is in the very first paragraph of your introduction, and you state, The Modern Lovers is an album of urban exploration and the search for self-understanding in the maelstrom of contemporary change. Wow. Wow, that was a good one, man. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds really impressive when somebody else says it. Wow. It stopped me in my tracks. But but that's the thing. You know, it, it was a, it's about buildings and roads and just wandering around. When the call went out, for the 33 and a third series, I was really into the situationist and Gita board and just kind of like wandering around. I was living in, in Medford, Mass. So like right next to Somerville and Cambridge, right next to Boston, I would wander all over the place going wherever the city took me. And so when the, the call went out and I was trying to find a kind of intellectual framework to analyze the modern lovers through the situationists and the, the concept of the derivate, the drift, really seem to kind of explain not only the songs that make up that first album, but also the kind of like theoretical framework that Richmond was working in as a teenager when he was kind of developing these songs and, and whittling down what he thought the modern lovers should be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and it, it fit. And now, you know, this is like me in my 30s. My, you know, my teen years were just like, listening to the modern lovers in my, you know, 1989 Ford Escort, driving down 128, going to like Gloucester to hang out with my punk rock friends. Yeah. And when I'm thinking about all this, while I'm out on my drifts, the way that our, the city's uh, architectural history and the way that the, the highways changed, because when Jonathan Richmond wrote about driving down Route 128 in Roadrunner, he was talking about two-line road that was very windy and had, you know, these, like, terrifying exits that are more like a Hot Wheels ramp than something that, you, like, you would drive your car over. These are engineering nightmares. 
versus like now 128 is four lanes in every direction, giant superscape highway. So it was easy to kind of like see where that construction mapped out over Jonathan Richmond's creative arc. When you talk about the intellectual framework of the book, I can say that this is definitely the first music book that I've ever read that ties in the brutalist architecture movement, Hello, Government Center, one of the songs on there. But that whole concept, like you're talking about, you know, it's time period. It was crucial to this whole story, the whole record. Mm. And I think brutalism has seen, you know, uh, a critical reevaluation in recent years. But, you know, that really starts with Jonathan Richmond. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was kind of, he was one of the first people to be like, hey, no, these can be, you know, places of joy. Uh, you know, we can make the secretaries feel better. <laughs> because he was so explicit in these songs about these buildings, I got to deep dive this. I got to figure out exactly, like, what was happening with these buildings, with the infrastructure in the city that, you know, he was drifting through. Right. I had to, like, figure out what was happening during Jonathan's derivation it revealed this really deep and interesting take on brutalism and its place within the city of Boston. Because, you know, it's been very in vogue to just trash government center and, you know, the buildings at UMass and, you know, all of these institutions that put up, like, brutalist, concrete testaments to, like, mid-century ideas of progressivism. People almost immediately hated them. But they worked, and they still are here, and they still work. Right, right. They don't have to be as oppressed. Yeah, it's all about functionality, I guess. And so Jonathan grew up in Natick, as you mentioned, you know, a bit out, outside yeah. the city. And, and this whole movement and this whole, you know, like you floating around had to be just mind-blowing in a sense. And, you know, you write that Natick isn't the sort of place with a high tolerance for oddness. You know, the element of surprise is exactly what parents had hoped to leave behind. But it's pretty clear that, you know, his growing up and, you know, the disenfranchisement had a powerful effect on his music. That's the thing. It's our traumas, however banal, are what shape us. And when your trauma is just like living in a shitty suburb, uh, (laughs) you know, it's tough to see that as a motivating factor. And maybe this is just me talking about myself. You end up defining yourself by your kind of rebellion against that. I think that's omnipresent in teenagers, uh, having you having know, gone through is, a couple of them. So, yeah, I mean, this is literally the script for Roadrunner, the song. And so, you know, when I'm like 14 years old and I'm going through this like really heavy period where I'm like, all I want to listen to is songs with like a Rhodes electric piano in it, even though I didn't know what a Rhodes electric piano was. And I found this song, and there's this dude talking about the road down the street from my house and how isolated and how much he doesn't want to hang out in his hometown. I'm like, oh, I get that. <laughs> it's a very easy record to relate to if you're from that kind of, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, to give a little bit of context, early in your book you write, it's the spring before the summer of love, and Boston has hit rock bottom. City is on the edge of collapse. But more importantly, you go on to note that, you know, a lot of artists and musicians are flocking to the city and uh, Chelsea Girls, the film is showing. And that was very controversial. There's folk and rock clubs. Everywhere. Warhol had been here. And then here comes Jonathan from the suburbs, right? Yeah. Uh, There's a a few different interviews where he mentions he 
he heard it on the radio and he, he just had to like go figure out who these people were and how they were doing this stuff and like how he could be a part of it. And he just, he was just trying to figure out, he was in it, you know, an inquisitive young kid trying to figure out how you get to be a musician, Yeah, yeah. you know? And I think one of like the big arcs in Jonathan's career is him figuring out how to be a musician. So that's like, you know, the original modern lovers with Harrison right, and Robinson right. and the whole crew. And you see that grow as he gets more familiar with himself in like the second incarnation. So like that, the like 76 to, to 80 berserkly years, that's him figuring out how to be a musician. He disappears off to Maine for a little while, comes back, hooks up with the rounder folks, and realizes he is a musician. And then you see this like amazing creative streak that lasts for the next 35 years. And you write really early on in your book, you say that Jonathan discovered by chance or on purpose the secret to rock and roll success. And it was three words. Do you remember those? Like just show up. That's it. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Just show up, you know? And You know, if you show up often enough, long enough, people notice you or enough people fall away that you're the only one standing. You know, as long as you, like, keep showing up and keep putting yourself in kind of, like, the center of where the action right, is, right. you're going to be able to ride that wave. And he, he he would show up for sure, but, you know, you've got the Boston psychedelic scene exploding and record men are coming into town, and then here's Jonathan, clean cut, performing on the Cambridge Common, singing Old World that talks about how he loves his parents. It's just the absolute antithesis of what's going on with the hippie ethos. Oh, yeah, but, but, but you know, like, the, the whole time the psychedelic thing is happening, like, Danny Fields is hanging out, because Danny Fields Velvet Underground. is part of the whole Harvard clique. Yeah. You know, he had just done his PR stint with, like, the Velvets, or he was in the middle of his, like, I don't know, world-changing run as a PR mm-hmm. guy at Electra Records. And, like, the thing about Danny Fields is he not only had a sense for, like, the primitive, but he also had, like, a really good sense of the pretty. Like, his knack for finding pretty boys that could make a really big noise and turn in a real easy hook, you know, is unparalleled in the history of music. I mean, we're talking about, like, you know, the guy that, <laughs> you know, signed the students right, is like... Right. You know, 5000 bucks. What in advance? <laughs> like, I just wrote liner notes for Stooges' record that's coming out for the 50th anniversary. What a brilliant investment. Right, right. They paid <laughs> They paid nothing to have these records that have been around forever right. and changed the way we think about music. And, you know, part of that appeal is like, man, Iggy's a good-looking dude. <laughs> and Danny Fields knew that. And, you know, like, if it was loud enough, the dudes were cute enough they were going to connect on all sorts of different levels. And, you know, Jonathan is both loud and cute. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about the record. Um, we mentioned a few songs like Roadrunner and Old World, Government Center. One of the things I noted in, you note in your book, is that the, the chapter titles are each one of the songs off of the album. But they are not in the running order, and that's because... Oh, yeah, there, there's a Modern Lovers edition for every generation. Because it was never issued as a formal LP, because the songs were never recorded with the intention of being on a final product, because it is a compilation, every time it's been reissued, there's, there are changes. 
my personal reissue, the copy that I got in the 90s when I was a kid, was the 1986 Rhino CD. Mm-hmm. And the running order on that includes songs from sessions with Kim Fowley that weren't included on the original Berserkly pressing in 1976. Right, and that's how I'm, I'm familiar with, because I had that on vinyl. So I had to go back and look, because it's been a while, but also, you know, it's one of those records where you don't, it's not the running order that's important, it's the song. So yeah, exactly. it's an interesting take. And there's like a 2000s pressing on vinyl that I think Get Back did that I've got that's like... It looks like, you know, the Berserkly issue, but it's got, you know, government sound. Right, right. And then there's, like, another version that was, like, released domestically on CD that's got even more songs and, like, a slightly different order. The thing about The Modern Lovers is that that band is just, like, really, even more than the album, bootlegs and live recordings, tapes that got passed around that kind of solidified their reputation even before the records were like commonly available but they're not really commonly available even in the 90s he was licensing roadrunner all over the place he was in like major motion pictures he was making like records that were flirting with like the charts you know he was on late night television the modern lovers was still out of print right right that's one of those records where you know some sort of person in your your circle has it and and it becomes just you know omnipresent you know and exactly everybody like makes tapes yeah, for each exactly. other those days i was the guy that had the record huh? yeah so I, I made lots of tapes it's like uh they're a band that ended up on like everybody's mix absolutely tapes. pablo picasso is a great tune yeah to me it's one of the few that sort of breaks ranks in that it has a little nastiness to it you know the chorus is you know pablo picasso never got called an asshole not like you do you have any uh, take on who that's aimed at? Um, I think that there is a certain amount of self-reflection in that song. Hmm. I think there's a certain amount of like general Bostonian competitiveness. Hmm. I think they're they're probably like it could be a lot of people that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't. I think it's about. Uh, I think it is about a lot of people hmm. being. You know, like a already 20 year old dude in boston music circles is uh it's a high strung place <laughs> you know I'm, I'm sure there were like some freewheeling folks who were totally at ease with everything but my memories of being like 20 years old and in the boston rock scene and you know like trying to meet girls and trying to be an artist at the same time i know i would have plenty of targets to like direct a song like pablo picasso to yeah. and i, I I imagine that uh, Jonathan Richmond was in the same boat. Boston, the Boston music scene, you know, circa 1970 is like an amazingly pretentious place. It's funny because you mentioned that uh, Steven Tyler and, and Joe Perry went to see him in Cambridge in 1969 at a coffee house. And you recount that uh, Steven Tyler says Boston's rock history has always been dark but it always had something mysterious to offer and that sounds like that's pretty spot on yeah yeah i mean like it's always got the constant battle between kind of like the uh, working class roots and the the kind of well-heeled well-educated temporary residents and i think 
in Boston's rock scene, you see those conflicts play out at the scene's most creative moments. Hmm. I think you see it in the late 60s, where you have, like, you know, kind of this tension between the people that didn't leave in white flight and the people that are moving in to, like, make art and live in cheap apartments. Right, right. You know, you see it again in the 80s when, you know, you have hardcore, which is, like, mostly young townies kind of barely coexisting with the college rock scene and kind of overlapping in weird spots. Right, right. And then it pops up again in the 90s when you have the post-hardcore thuggish FSU kids beating up BU kids on Lansdowne Street outside of Mullican. <laughs> to tie it all back to Aerosmith. It's all Aerosmith. It's yeah, That's there why everything is bad in Boston. I say that very jokingly. I, I feel like I need to like qualify that I'm a huge Aerosmith fan. It's just It's been a rough week. Their Grammy performance has been bumming me out. <laughs> Joey Kramer would probably agree with you, but that's another story. Yeah, yeah. Another song, I'm Straight. Richmond gets a little nasty again. This time he aims his ire at hippie Johnny, who presumably is now with Richmond's ex-girlfriend. You called that song in, in your book immediately alienating. Can you expand on that? I think in that song, rather than kind of like negotiate a conflict or maybe accept that a romantic encounter isn't going to go his way. He's quick to kick off the girl and to blame the girl's disinterest on, you know, her interest in drugs. And so he's, like, immediately drawing this line in the sand. It's like, hey, you know, you don't like me, but it doesn't matter because I'm straight. And to be fair, he wasn't part of the hippie counterculture in terms of... No, no, he wasn't. And, you know, I think there's admirable kind of defensive measures happening in that song like that he is like kind of declaring his sobriety and his lack of participation in like the very complicated very contentious drug culture like as much as we like to kind of romanticize drug culture and drug culture at that point there's like a lot of uncool sexual politics happening within drug culture and and to delineate yourself and say I'm not part of that, is cool defense mechanism, I guess. It's a, a cool way to run counter to the predominant narrative. But at the same time, in his kind of defensiveness, Jonathan kind of takes on a, a petty misogyny that is kind of nasty, mm -hmm. maybe uncalled for, and it doesn't really give his romantic interest the agency that she deserves as a human being. Well, it's funny because that's the first of three songs that you describe as kind of a triptych. And um, they're all three killer songs, too. But there's I'm Straight, She Cracked, and then Hospital, which I believe, you know, the, the chorus of that is when you get out of the hospital, let me back into your life. And then She she Cracked, you coined a great summary line. I think it was yours. It said, she cracked, but he walked. So there is a, sort of a narrative there. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that... I've realized in kind of the wake of writing this book and in the post-Me Too era, Jonathan's able to vocalize a lot of the unpretty sides of, like, teen yearning and teenage lust and teenage love. I think that is part of the reason why he doesn't revisit mm -hmm. this, like, body of work very often. And if he does, he changes it. You know, I think that... Jonathan's approach and understanding of women 
it changes dramatically in a number of different ways over the course of his career. And if you look at the way that he approaches love and romance in his later career, it's uh, much more open. There's a lot more communication. It's not just about him. It's about the dialogue between himself and his romantic partners. And so to kind of like look back at these early songs that are very much just one dude's voice, no interaction with the the romantic partner. You know, and in hospital, they're not even sharing like the same space. So you're talking pretty much a typical, you know, immature male at this point. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, and know. so, and so, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things is like, he, he did such a, a great job of capturing that like frustration that like that so many young dudes, myself included, have trouble vocalizing and tr- have trouble understanding. And I think that's like part of what makes these songs great. It makes them like a lot more interesting to dive into as an adult and kind of like unpack everything that's going on. Then say something like Cherry Pie by Warren. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, if you want to like talk about something that's like happening at the same time, like in Boston or more interesting to unpack than say like Ballad of the Hip Death Goddess <laughs> by Ultimate Spinach or, you know, like, wow. <laughs> wow. There's so much, it, it's so plain stated and so hems so close to the kind of shared reality that it makes it so rewarding to revisit, you know, like I, earth opera used a lot of fancy words, but like, there's not a lot to parse right. there. Well, I think that clarity too, and, and simplicity is the reason that it's such a seminal touchstone record. And it's, it's really cross-generational. I think people still oh, have definitely. those kinds of feelings. And when you hear it, you know, like I remember the first time I heard it, you said that you were the guy who probably turned a lot of people onto it, but you know, you've got that album or the Velvet Underground's first album, the Ramones debut, and they're, you know, exponentially influential. Yeah. But at the same time, they're not commercially popular in their own time. I think that there's a little bit of that Danny Fields magic in the kind of the narrative that they were kind of commercial flop. Like, there's evidence that points to, like, a much bigger fan base, a much bigger contingent of critical support than what I would call like West Coast mythology, the Rolling Stone version of rock history. Right. Like that version downplays what were really like pretty solid, successful bands, mid-tier bands. Uh, you know, like they weren't, you know, they didn't have any like chart topping success, but they, they were able to build audiences. Right. They were, you know, they were out there. People showed up. It wasn't like the way that like Rolling Stone spins it and that nothing was happening on the East Coast or in the Midwest. There were huge audiences. There were regional stations that were like into these. The thing about like the modern lovers is that they were getting into like the New York Daily News. They were being written up by Cream and they were being mentioned in Fusion and they were being covered by the alt weeklies without ever releasing anything formal. Right, right, right. I mean, it's tough to fathom now, but that's like a, a pretty significant amount of success, especially compared to a lot of other acts at the time that were way better funded and, you know, even sold more. You know, the only thing I can think of, and I don't want to go too far down that path, but there was the Danger Mouse record, I think it was, with um, 
Kanye West, the Grey album, where he did all the Beatles samples, and that that you heard about that record, but you couldn't find it or hear it anywhere, and it's kind of yeah. a similar thing. But you do describe the modern lover sound is diametrically opposed to the hit makers and the chart toppers and that crowds on both coasts were hostile to the band. Oh yeah. I mean like the folks that loved them, loved them, but like random folks at the bar, right, right. <laughs> they didn't tour that much, but like anytime there's like a, a bootleg tape, like there's always a heckler. Mm-hmm. There's always somebody starting shit <laughs> when it's not just like crickets and, or like, three dudes in the back of the room just like wooing their brains out <laughs> because they love the Velvet Underground and this is a band that also sounds like the Velvet Underground. I mean, it, you know, it's a little bit more artier than what was going on, although, you know, you could argue a different kind of art, I guess. And, you know, the same with the yeah. Ramones or, or the Velvet Underground, certainly. And, you know, it's interesting, I find that, you know, growing up on those records, now you go into any sports arena and you're going to hear the Ramones and Hey Ho, Let's Go. And you're going to hear, if you're in Boston, you're going to hear Roadrunner. It's some game. Oh, yeah. But, you know, back in the day, you could get your ass kicked, <laughs> you know. Right? Like, I, it's pretty weird. Like, when, when Rick Ocasek passed away, I had to be at um, the Boston Public Library to research something. And so I just, I decided to just, like, dive into the, the Phoenix archives. You can see things happening for bands when you look at, like, the old alt-weeklies. Mm-hmm. You can see these bands, like, bubbling up like, years before their records came out. Whereas now, you couldn't get, you know, like, a listing. I don't even know. There's no place that does listings. <laughs> the um, internet. <laughs> like, like you, even a listing on the internet, somebody's going to be like, oh, can you send me a record first? Right. You know, like, you're not going to get into... Like, the Globe doesn't talk about unsigned bands. Right. I do remember at the original Newberry Street comics on Newberry Street, and I lived right around there post-college, and um, Amy Mann was, you know, a clerk at Newberry Comics, and this is right when that first EP came out before, you know, and when she hit MTV, it was a whole nother thing, you know? But th- there, yeah. there she was, you know, checking you out, you know, and, and taking your credit card or your money. Back in the day, there was definitely a stronger network for building up fans from like the bottom but also it only costs you five bucks to get into the route of the channel and you know now you get a ticket and it's three hundred dollars you know so you know like if you're if people under 21 you know if 18 year olds can buy beer it's a lot easier to get people to go to shows too well also they'd have some killer triple bills you know where for you know ten dollars you're seeing you know, the, uh, not necessarily the Modern Lovers, that was before my time, but, you know, Till Tuesday and Scruffy the Cat and the Turbines in one show. And now it's, you got one song out and you're playing at the Garden or somewhere for, you know, $110 for, you know, a nosebleed seat. So it was a lot oh, yeah. easier to navigate and to explore different kinds of music, I think. Oh, oh, for sure. Well, and there were so many rooms where you could play. I mean, one of the things about Boston that a lot of other cities didn't have outside of like, say like San Francisco and LA and New York is it had that folk music scene that had just tons of rooms, you know, cause the folk music scene could, you know, run on, you know, a couple of lights and a coffee maker <laughs> and like, bam, you can open a folk clubs. So like Boston was just like littered with them. It was easy to kind of corral the people going to those clubs when the psychedelic ballrooms came up. So when like the Crosstown bus opened out by BU or, you know, the tea party up in the South end 
or the unicorn over by BU. There, there were hundreds. There were, you know, there's, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, you know, there was this audience that was easy to switch over, and then once folks like Don Law figured out how to turn the psychedelic ballrooms into just like money printing machines, right. mm-hmm. suddenly Boston turns into this major music economy. That really made it easier to build up bands and kind of like grow them from Rick Ocasek and Ben Orr showing up to play like folky Prague in 72 and, you know, groom them to be the world's greatest rock stars 15 years later. It's worth pointing out, besides Jonathan, who, who was quite a character, um, that Modern Lovers did feature David Robinson, who would go on to the cars, and Jerry Harrison, who would go on to Talking Heads. You know, <laughs> funny because Jonathan obviously has this knack for just finding amazing collaborators and like by just showing up, you know, he was able to insert himself into these like very creative circles. That early rat scene is so, is filled with like just so much raw, unfettered talent. I mean, it's just like, ah, it's incredible to think like, to just like think about like all these people that were just making such great tunes i spent way too much time there so <laughs> it was a great club it was a dump but yeah. it was a great music club i got to catch the like last few years of all ages matinees there my friend ben booked the last ever oh, show yeah i remember that i remember that hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Sean L. Maloney, whose book for 33 and a third is The Modern Lovers, which is an amazing record, and you should definitely read it. It's a very tight history of, of Boston rock and roll as well. One of the interesting things that you were just getting into is Jonathan, how he kind of shifted and, and moved away from that first record, which never was meant to be a record, and somehow made it out into one of the all-time greats through demos, and I guess berserkly released it after he did his record there, which was when he started going more acoustic, you know, and he dramatically shifted gears and left that sound 
into like a sing-along campfire atmosphere. And you mentioned earlier, he was in movies. He was in something about Mary. He continues to perform. Who is Jonathan Richmond these days? Do you know? He's the great American troubadour. He's a, you know, he's a man with a guitar and a song in his heart. And he roams from town to town, playing shows his way. And, you know, he had, his recent records have the impromptu, off-the-cuff feel of some of those, like, classic early recordings. Mm-hmm. Beyond the first Modern Lovers record, there's a whole Modern Lovers bootleg industry. Most of the things that were recorded in some capacity have made it out there. And there's a lot of versions of songs where Jonathan just riffing on this theme and kind of going off the cuff. You know, there's demos, there's the the Laura Palmer tape and all of these like really like wonderful lo-fi, intimate, fun, off-the-cuff performances. And he's managed to tap into that energy while delivering these kind of wizened and insightful observations about love and wine and art. It's pretty remarkable, especially considering, because between like the the loud proto-punk of the original Mach 1 Modern Lovers and beyond the playful doo-wop, the twee rock and roll of Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, the like second incarnation. You know, he made a country record. He made a record with Rick Ocasek that's totally weird. <laughs> you know, he he made like party records and, you know, he's been incorporating calypso and flamenco and he sings in Portuguese and Spanish and, you know, French and, you know, he's he's very worldly and he's very well traveled and he's very welcoming. His performances these days are they're very homey. Yeah, yeah. I I haven't seen him in like it's almost two years. Oh, wow. Yeah, the the last time I saw him, it was at his show at Somerville mm-hmm. Theater, and it was mm-hmm. the first time I felt my baby kiss. <laughs> that was really magical. And so like so now like Jonathan Richmond shows rather than being like confrontational art punk gatherings, you know, in weird places, are now like. You know, in nice theaters with families, you know, and at low volumes and, you know, done in a reasonable hour. Musically, it's almost like he went back to those folk clubs, you know. It's more of that kind of a vibe, you know. And the When you it talk is, about the Boston folk clubs and the sing-along things, mostly acoustic. And uh, it's a totally different animal. And I saw him many, many, many times in the 80s doing those shows. And they were so much fun. I think it's funny because there's, like, a lot of people that are, like, get real nervous they're like oh i heard he hates cell phones and he's he won't let you wear your hat backwards or something (laughs) and you know like people have these like really intense ideas about like what a jonathan richmond show is and how you're supposed to behave and that kind of like prevents them from accepting the fun until like maybe it's a little too late right right well, you know, if, if you listen to the Modern Lovers album that you write about in your book, and then you go see him live, you better be prepared that those are two alternate universes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I actually wrote a hand guide for attending a Jonathan Richmond show. And it, it, it's like, yo, just <laughs> turn your phone off. Don't expect to hear Roadrunner. Pablo Picasso, you know. Expect to hear, like, pieces of it. Like, the thing about him. At this point in his career, he knows what he's done. 
<laughs> you know, and you you get glimpses of it all. But he's done so much that he wouldn't have been able to fit it all in anyways. You know, mm-hmm. I I want to hear Reno every time I see him, but like that's not happening. <laughs> you know, you just have to accept that like Jonathan's going to play the show he wants to, not the show you want. You know, that's that's a, a perfect summation, and and probably always has. He's you know Egyptian reggae and things like that, and well, that was his problem. I mean, that's why he was like unsignable and you know like why the original modern lovers broke up was because he was just gonna do his own show that was the big fight between him and john cale when they were trying to make the record for warner jonathan just didn't want to play loud anymore and he wasn't gonna do it and so he fought his longtime hero and mentor the band imploded so he does his own thing and that's like that's his thing that's why it's Always. And one could argue there's nothing more punk rock than that. Oh, exactly. I want to leave it here because we've kind of time-traveled through this, and I wrote uh, something that I wanted to sort of end it with you. You write at the end of your book, and I'll quote, it's too cool for their own time. The modern lovers appear at just the right moment to predict and participate in a cultural moment. Is that their legacy? I think so. I think that they were, like their legacy is that they were like – a legend, <laughs> you know, they were the band that was cooler than you from the get go. They, they might have been the legend no one ever heard of, really, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except for, well, you, like I always think about like the punk rock mythos being founded on this idea that all of the early punk bands were too cool to like make a record. You know, like they all imploded before they could get to that like next step, before they could mature, before they could get lame. <laughs> you know, like the Sex Pistols implode. On impact. One record. There's like 20 volumes of Killed by Death with like one song by this band that existed for one song. You have bands like Rocket from the Crypt. Right, right. Became legends before they even really accomplished much. The Modern Lovers were really like the first band to get to that point. Because like even the Stooges got a record. Right. You know, the New York Dolls made a record. But like Modern Lovers were so cool that they couldn't even make a record. And there's the myth, you know, it's a bunch of demo tapes that was cobbled together and made an impression on anyone who heard it. Yeah, it's such a unexpected classic. If in 1972 you were, you know, standing at the back of the Harvard Boat Club watching a bunch of co-eds get pissed that they couldn't understand this band, and you you told a person that, no, these guys are going to have one of the most important records of all time. Nobody in that room would have believed you. Everybody would have been like, you're, you're kidding me. Get the shit out of here. And, and it still stands the test of time. You know, I went back and listened to it after reading your book. It's a great record. Your book is fantastic. You used a great word, unexpected. One of the things I love about it, and you know, all our listeners should check it out, especially if you like the Boston music scene, but it's a really fascinating study of times and architecture and things that are happening in the city while this other thing is going on that has stood the test of time but was clearly out of uh, fit with the rest of the stuff going on. So congratulations on your book. It's really, really good. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us, Sean. And uh, you got anything else you're working on? I just finished editing uh, a forthcoming 33 and a third about Janet Jackson's The Velvet Rope. Great record. Oh, man, it's... uh, (laughs) This woman, Ayana Dozier, she's like a doctoral student at McGill, and she wrote this like black feminist 
criticism of the book that's oh, it's fantastic. Um, um, I loved reading it. I can't wait for like other people to read it so I can talk about it with them. Um, <laughs> it's so good. Very cool. Well, keep us in the loop. You know, if we can, we'll have you back when you get something else out. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great night. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.